Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-hosts, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. And Iman Aledrus, who's an adult psychiatrist in Los Angeles. She completed her training through Kaiser's psychiatry program and she hopes to shed more light on gun violence prevention and what our roles can be as providers. Hi, Iman. Hi, thanks for having me. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we're going to talk about what a mental health professional can do when a client presents with a risk of being violent with a gun. And to do that, we're honored to have with us Dr. Rebecca Capasso. Dr. Rebecca Capasso is the Assistant Director for Inpatient Psychiatry at Bellevue Hospital Center and Unit Chief of an Acute Inpatient Psychiatric Unit. She's Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at NYU Lagone School of Medicine. Dr. Capasso is board certified in psychiatry from the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology promoted to unit chief in 2014. She was a recent recipient of the Doctors Across New York grant recognizing work with underserved populations. She spent three years as the medical director of psychiatry at Project Renewal while remaining as an adjunct faculty and mentor for the NYU Grossman School of Medicine Psychiatry Department. In 2019, she became a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. In 2021, she was elected to the executive board of the New York County Psychiatric Society serving as district representative to the APA General Assembly. In 2022, she returned to Bellevue Hospital as the Assistant Director of Inpatient Psychiatry. Her academic interests focus on the treatment of schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder, public psychiatry, telepsychiatry for people experiencing homelessness during COVID-19 and gun violence prevention. Becky, thank you for joining us again on Let's Get Psyched. I'm so glad to be here, thank you. Well, I'd like to start out with just presentation of cases. Let's get right into it. Um, so let's have, because you're the expert, Becky, so we want to get your knowledge <laughs> and just soak it up. So uh, who wants to start? I'll go. I, okay, I have Tasha. a case. Um, I, I'm i changing some of the details of this case to protect their privacy and everything. Um, but uh, I, there was a, so I'm a child psychiatrist, right? So I had a teenage male come into clinic with his mom and it was for a standard ADHD evaluation, right? But then as we're doing the review of systems, I discover that there is some depressive symptoms, pretty significant suicidal ideation, and at one point, even maybe one or two weeks ago, um, he was having suicidal ideation and even with a plan to use the family's gun. Now, the... Um, mom, when I spoke to the mom, she was really sure that, you know, this gun is locked up in the safe, um, you know, appropriate steps were taken. Um, and she was sure her son did not know, you know, what the combination was. But then as it turned out, as we spoke more about it, it turned out indeed their son knew the combination. So he had total access to this gun without the knowledge of the parents. Um, so yeah, I, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that case. Uh, from what I've read, this is fairly common, more common than people realize that parents don't think their child knows where the gun is. 
um, knows how to get to the gun. And yet maybe I want to say I have to find the study, but I want to say like a quarter of kids in a study said that they had even handled this gun in their family's home, that the, the parents were certain their kid didn't even know where it was. Right. So what do you do? What do you think about this? What do you do? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, what a what a scary thing to discover in the office, right? So we're all coming in thinking it's going to be a standard. It just shows you that nothing is standard when you're a psychiatrist, right? Nothing is standard when when you start talking to someone. Um, well, and, and second of all, good job asking. Good job asking if there was a gun in the home. You know, there, there are some studies that show that only a third of, of mental health providers will even ask if there is a gun. So often one of the first things that I try and educate people about is when you're doing a violence risk assessment, you have to ask about that kind of lethal means access. So first of all, kudos to that. You're, you're, already, you're already ahead of the game just having, having that information. Um, and I think that, I mean, first of all, you're totally right. We know how to do risk assessments, right? We know to think about past risk, risk factors, current risk, and then we try and project that into the future, right? What is this young person going to do when they leave the office? Um, which is a scary moment, right? Having learned what you just learned uh, about his home environment. So do a good risk assessment. So in the past, has he ever tried to harm himself, right? Think about where he is currently. Okay, this just started. And then again, you did a good job of asking the question because I think that's where a lot of us get will get hung up. Or again, a lot of people just won't even ask because they may not even know the risks associated with having a gun. Um, and so, so for adolescents, they are 10 times likelier to have a suicide, adolescent suicide in a home with a firearm than in a home without. So already he is 10 times more likely to commit suicide than if his mom did not happen to own a gun. So that's terrifying, right? So then we then we can start really focusing our risk assessment. And, and we know that we're bad at risk assessments, right? We are bad at predicting the future. Um, so we can keep asking these questions and you, you ask some really good ones about safe storage and talking to the mom, but, but a gun in the home makes, even for adults, at least three to seven times more likely that a person's going to commit suicide if there's a gun in the home. It's just such a lethal means. Um, and so then we just have to get to how are we going to restrict that lethal mean of suicide? away from that young man until he can get treatment. So number one, great job asking the question. Great job getting the information. Number two, we're doing our risk assessment. We acknowledge we're not very good at it. And we, and then we know the facts. So now we know that he's actually at, at very high risk. So how do you bring that to the family? How do you counsel the family? Are you presenting the this data to them? How are you talking about safe storage? All of those things. Yeah. Um, yeah, really difficult thing to do. 
right? Because then you're you're also disclosing, right? This thing that he told you in in private. So it's it's going to get very very fraught, um, understandably. Um, and I will again, I will probably admit that I'm not very good. At, none of us are very good at risk assessment. We can't predict the future, but these are my worries. That's how I would, I, I'm seriously very concerned about the gun in your home. I'm seriously very concerned, especially if he's having suicidal ideation. And I might drop the fact. Now I happen to know that fact because I do this work, but if you don't know that fact, you don't have to know that number to just say he's at much more increased risk, right? He, or in this case, he, but you know, the person's at much more increased risk. Um, I think you did a, again, a brilliant job talking about safe storage. And we will talk about that because we want the gun, right? Locked in a safe, unloaded. We want the, the ammunition locked up separately from the gun itself. All of these are like slow down steps, right? Is, is the slow down step so that if Maybe he can get into one safe and not the other. That would be brilliant. Um, but uh, I would love to see the study. I, I, but I, I completely believe that these young people can absolutely get into these safes and have figured out how. Even if I, my two young ones are very young and they can break into my phone and my iPad. It does not matter. They can break in. They know. They know technology. They know how to do this stuff. So I. Yeah. Always, I always believe that they know three times more than I know. <laughs> if, this, I, if I think I put the parental locks on the YouTube, they've broken it. <laughs> exactly. This is definitely not the first time I have had a even a child tell me they know where the gun is when yeah. the parents telling me, no, they have no idea where it is. It is not the first time it's happened. Yeah. It happened later the same month of this oh, case. Gosh. And yeah. it was a very young child. Like I'm talking um, younger than seven years old. Yeah. Tosha, I'm curious, how do you document that interaction and how do you include all of that in your record? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, I feel like I would like more training on this, hence having Dr. Capasso on. But <laughs> I, what I do is I document what the patient's telling me, you know, and um, what I counsel the patient and the family about. And I give them resources too about there's a, gosh, I can't think of what the website is, but it, I just, it's teens and suicide. Um, and I'll give them that to read out the family to read up on, um, you know, outside of the clinic so that they can educate themselves further. And on that website, and I'll include it in the show links on that website, it includes information about how to create a safe space or, you know, making the environment safer. That's brilliant. There's some, there's some good videos too. Even if you're, even if you're a step back, we're already talking about safe storage, which is excellent. Um, and definitely something I recommend even if you take a step back, there's some training videos. If you're a clinician who says, uh, frankly, I don't even ask, right? Like I, I'm sitting here listening to you all. And Tosha did a brilliant job of sussing out all this information. And I don't even ask about guns. It makes me uncomfortable, you know, or, or I just don't even think about it or everyone has guns. So why, you know, why would I ask? Um, but there's some great videos. So even if you're part of that, I think majority of us who tend to forget to ask about gun access in the home, 
um, there's some great videos and I can send you links as well. And for the show notes, just about yeah, that'd be great. how to ask how to, you know, like a clinical OSCE, how we practice asking some of these questions so that we can train up on that. Cause, because even that is 90% of the work is, is doing, is doing what you've already said that, that you did. I went to a talk at one of the APA conferences years ago, and um, it was about how to talk about guns. I think specifically with vets, I want to say. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah. And the uh, take the key takeaway that I got from the talk was um, engaging with the patient in an interested dialogue, an interested perspective of, so what do you use it for? And what kind of gun is it? And tell me about, you know, I don't know the model or it's, it's been a while. I don't know that much about guns, but, you know, showing some interest in it to, and that gets you a sense of, you know, how often this person's handling the gun, taking it out of the safe, what they're using it for mm -hmm. and um, how, how deep do they go in terms of their like gun uh, affection, knowledge, you know, all of that sort of thing, which can give you some pretty good information. Yeah, I agree. I, I kind of approach it almost like I ask about drugs. Um, oh, what does that do for you? How does it feel? How often yeah. do you use it? You know, yeah. and again, a lot of those are questions that I don't know, I personally uh, didn't have a lot of background on and had to learn. <laughs> how am I, how am I asking about drugs? And so I guess I would just encourage us to do that about guns as well. If you told me a different model of a gun, I would say, okay, but, but at least then I've, you're, you're creating that empathetic bond, right? You're not coming in automatically and saying cocaine, that's bad. You know, your <laughs> guns, those are bad. So you're you coming do what? in. What? What? No, you. So, um, so that's a really good thing. And, and you're documenting it. And then the next thing I would probably talk to a family like this about is a temporary transfer. So a temporary transfer is completely, is fancy way of a completely voluntary, put that gun somewhere else, your son is at risk. You're not yeah. getting rid of it. I'm not, I'm not turning you into the authorities. Um, but it really, it really is access to the gun in a household where this young person is, is going to be, and again, going to have access to. Mm -hmm. So it shouldn't be at um, a cousin's house where he is all the time. You know, it should really be that friend, that, that somebody who isn't, this young man's not going to go wander into their house because he's got the key and he, you know, it's cousin so-and-so it's somebody else who, uh, can hold on to that gun, can take the safe, can keep it safely stored away until Tosha, you have the ability to do your excellent treatment and get this young man not thinking about suicide and safe. And then we can talk about the gun returning to the home. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking with Rebecca Capasso about gun violence, but in particular, what do mental health professionals do when they have these kind of statements or they think that there could be a risk of using a gun in a violent act. Um, so I, I'm going to pick up on that. So with, yeah, with teenagers, adolescents, you want to gain trust, of course, and you, um, you want them to share as much as possible. But what for you is the tipping point where you break confidentiality, you talk to parents about 
gun safe gun safety how they're storing it and you know you know what what are some of the key things that you look for and they say okay so now i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to break confidential i'm gonna have to talk to the parents about the gun yeah well and and full full admission i'm an adult psychiatrist so i'll i'll punt some of that over back to tosha but I mean, at, at some point, and I'm an inpatient doctor, so there's my other bias. If I'm thinking about hospitalizing someone, if I'm saying, okay, the risk is at that level that I can't have you in the community right now until I can assess, treat, get a safety plan together for you, that's, that's definitely a time when I am calling family members, where is this gun? Uh, can you all get rid of it? Um, because, and again, I'm an inpatient adult, uh, but, e but even then, you know, they might say, well, it's my gun. I'm an adult. I have every right to it. You can't take it from me. Um, and we can talk about ways that that actually can happen, but even for an adult, then I'll say, but you are now in the hospital and you're, you're in acute danger to yourself or others. Um, we're talking mostly about suicide because most gun violence is suicide over half of, of, deaths due to firearms or suicide. So that's that's why it's so important for us. But but I would I would be talking about it, especially if I'm thinking, and I don't know where you your head was at in this in this panicked moment, Tosha, but to say, do I need to hospitalize this this young person or how am I going to get a safety plan together? And that might have to include the parent. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think that this could be a whole nother episode in and of itself, just like a discussion on limits of confidentiality when dealing with a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, I, For the sake of the time of the episode, I'll say that I have some hard stops that I use to keep myself basically honest and, and, and not to be swayed too much being in the heat of the moment. Um, but I also want to say I balance that with, you know, there are case by case situations. So um, if there's um, and I also like to keep as much decision making and autonomy. Uh, I like to give as much of that as possible to the patient, to the teenager. So I might say something like, how do you want to do this? Do you want me to tell so and so or do you want to tell so and so, you know, so those sort of things. Um, yeah, but again, I think we could do a whole nother episode on this, so I'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Capasso, I have a question about if you have had any experience in sort of getting referrals or patients who are posting violent threats online and what is our role as psychiatrists in that situation? Is there a role for us? And, you know, in your experience, uh, are there certain types of sort of posts and websites that people are gravitating to that are indicative of violence, like 4chan and, and those types of websites? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, luckily, or honestly, it, it hasn't gotten so deep as to certain websites. I mean, patients might talk to me about uh, what they're doing online, but a lot of folks I work with, um, it, it's not so much what websites they're visiting, but a family member has brought them to the hospital, say they need to come in because they've been posting things 
online, um, they, their Instagram on their Facebook, uh, or texted something that is violent um, and threatening, and that's why they're concerned. Um, we had uh, I had a case where that's exactly how the 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 person came in. He didn't really have much psychiatric history that we could suss out, but he had been declining over some years. His parents were very concerned about him. And then he was making increasingly threatening posts online. Um, and the unfortunate thing in New York, at least, is mental hygiene law is the, those kinds of things are inadmissible in mental hygiene court. So although we had read the posts and the texts that were turned in by the family, they weren't admissible in court. Um, and so when I was doing my risk assessment to go to court, because of course this gentleman wanted to leave, my parents are lying, I'm not gonna do anything. Um, I was like, well, what about these texts? You know, that, that wasn't me. I, you know, I didn't do that. When you say um, court, just to clarify, Becky, you're talking uh, about court to detain him, like to keep him in the hospital. Correct. Mental hygiene court to um, to retain him in the hospital while he is petitioning to leave the hospital, uh, saying that he does not meet criteria. Um, and. And, you know, so truly we were in this quagmire and he told me that he had guns. So I had to, of course, add that to my risk assessment. Where are the guns? And then he would get a little evasive. He said there was one in his apartment, but maybe his brother took it. No, you can't speak to my brother. So I couldn't even confirm where the gun is. So it gets it gets incredibly it gets incredibly complicated. Um, and, and then I have to be able to figure out which of, what of this I can testify to in mental hygiene court and what of this I cannot testify to. And I, I, uh, frankly was on pins and needles. Um, yeah. that case ended up, uh, since he had spoken to me about the guns, I could testify about him claiming he had guns. And then he explained in court where they all were. Luckily, they were not in his custody. His brother did have one. I think the police had a different one. Um, and so they had already been removed, one by a family member and one by, I'm not sure if he turned it into, I can't remember the details, if he turned it into the police or the police decided to take it. Um, but his his entire risk assessment was built on threats towards others, yes, and and guns, having access to guns, because having access to guns also makes you more at risk, not only of killing yourself, but of killing someone else. So that's a case where we had put in a SAFE Act report, right? So we talked a little bit about that last time. That's just a report saying a person uh, shouldn't be able to buy a gun legally in New York because they're likely to engage in serious harm. And if we had figured out that the guns weren't removed, we might have enacted a red flag law or gotten the family to help us enact a red flag law. And that's where guns that are already purchased um, are removed from the home. Again, uh, as you know, leaving the hospital either for risk of suicide or violence, it's a, it's a heavily uh, risky time in the couple of months after leaving the hospital. So that that was one of our primary concerns. Can you give us some examples of what sort of red flags would trip a red flag law? 
So in New York, at least, and I think the laws are worded slightly differently in different states. So definitely wherever you're listening from, look up your red flag laws. But it's it's preventing an individual who may be showing signs of being a threat to themselves or others from purchasing or possessing a gun of any kind. And if they own a gun, they must surrender it. So. So it can be a mental health professional, it can be a family member, it can be a primary care doctor, anyone who's examined the person in the last six months. And then there's basically a form and you're applying to a court to get a judge to order that the gun that we're guessing they own is removed. And then they go on a universal like kind of background check list that they shouldn't also be able to purchase more guns. So what would trigger that if if I'm asking someone if they own a gun? Now I'm I work in the hospital, okay? So already my folks are a little bit more high risk. Um, but if this gentleman, for example, was saying he had a gun in his home and was making threats to hurt others, that would trigger the red flag law. If someone was um, said they had a gun and they were saying they were going to kill themselves. And I couldn't get a kind of temporary transfer, this more friendly, you know, uh, can can your mom take the gun? Can can your brother take the gun? Can anyone else take this gun away? And we can't get a person to agree to that. That would probably signal for me, okay, I need to maybe do the red flag law. And and I'll be honest, I've never done it. So that's, we've always managed. That was my next question. Yeah, I've never done it. And I've, I got this case I was mentioning is probably the closest that I was wow. like, okay, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> I'm going to pull up the website and see what it looks like because I I, ooh, I might be getting there. Wow. Um, let me ask you, what are your thoughts about after there is a, a, a violent death? It could be a suicide. It could be a mass shooting. The impact of media reports on that to people killing themselves or committing violence how does, does that factor into your next session? If you're kind of concerned about a particular person and you're seeing that person, um, how do you talk about it? That kind of thing. Uh, you, you're, you're talking about like the contagion effect. Yes. That if, if somebody, you know, hadn't considered this um, before, maybe they would. I think, uh, great question. Very complicated. I don't know that I have a well-articulated answer. I think the one thing that I think about is, that just kind of popped into my head when, when you said that was, you know, people usually don't switch their suicide methods. It's one of the reasons that a removing a gun is so effective at preventing suicide by firearm. So in general, and this is some research out of Harvard that I can uh, send you guys links to, if someone started, unfortunately, their suicidal thoughts by thinking, I'm going to cut myself, they usually will continue to have thoughts of the same type of method. So if the thought started, I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to shoot myself with a gun, it's likely that that kind of thought would continue. Often people don't what what switch means. And so and so I guess what you're asking about is that contagion effect, would I be worried about it? Yes. Um, and would I ask about it? Certainly. Um, but I think I would still say, you know, like, are, are, are the voices telling you 
to, you know, to jump off a bridge again? Are they saying anything else to you? Because again, it's, it's less likely that, that a person switches their kind of preferred method, it sounds very morbid, um, to attempt suicide. But I, I think I would certainly ask, but I don't know that there's, a, I don't know what good data there is for that. What are your thoughts about just media reporting on uh, uh, violence? And, uh, you know, yeah. are, does that encourage or does that facilitate or does that increase violence? Yeah. I mean, we've heard about, I think, one of the, the recent uh, folks going on trial said something like, I'm going to be the next school shooter, right? So, so again, I think it does give people who are saying, I'm angry, I'm trying to figure out what to do, it does give them ideas. Um, but, on the, but on the other hand, I don't know that we can't educate people, right? I think that's why we bring in mental health professionals to schools after there was a suicide um, to try and give comfort and outreach and not leave folks in a vulnerable, grieving place without the support to say, you know, gosh, you know, why did so-and-so get so desperate? Maybe I'm feeling that desperate. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about gun violence and what mental health professionals can do when they see a risk for violence with a gun with Dr. Rebecca Capasso. Becky, thank you for joining us again on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you so much. And also thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshia Maguchi and Iman Ali-Drus. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr.gmail.com. You can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Okay, so I've got more questions. So many questions. So many questions. Um, my first one is for you, actually, Aaron. Oh. Um, so on the therapy side of things, I don't know anything about what are your guys's, you know, laws about this. What do you what do you guys do when you have a patient who's high risk? Yeah, I you know this I I you know actually I I started asking about guns much more often after I saw one of the psychiatrists at our student health center does that all, all the time. So psychiatrists kind of, like I said, a little bit more on the ball on that. Um, so I ask it all the time. I, I mean, I don't see it. I didn't Great. see it that much in my assessment and assessment. I'm talking about assessment, assessment, okay. like first time. And okay. so um, now I do that a lot more. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think it's a whole lot different than um, psychiatry, but the, the thing is that the, the relationships in, confidentiality become more of a thing. So, you know, the safety plan of, you know, roommates, for example, you know, I work at a college campus, so roommates or, or family members, um, you know, once, once that information, you know, gets around that, that can be huge, but, you know, sometimes you can't, you have to break confidentiality to maintain safety of the person. So of the client, um, but yeah, if you, you, you definitely want to, I, I, the best nugget I heard, one of the best nuggets is that they don't change their means and their methods. That's really important because I feel yeah. like this, this maintaining safety, uh, the, the, the environment of, of, of being safe and how you do that. I feel like I do that quite a bit with uh, creating safety plans and things like that. Just, just in case 
I feel like I, I try to err on the side, but I don't think I'm answering your question, Tosh. What is there any particular <laughs> thing that you're thinking of where? Uh, no, you know, no. I was just wondering if your situation is pretty much the same as ours uh, in terms of risk assessment, documentation, what do you, what actions you take in counseling the patient, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And then, and as far as you're talking about charting a little bit before, you know, you we want to put an actual little section where if there is a risk, you want to say this is the risk and I assess it. And this is what I did or did not do. And this is why I did or did not do it. I mean, you want to mm-hmm. have it very clear and prominent. Yeah. And I'll include two protective factors and risk factors. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Another question I have is, have you folks heard about the book Aurora that came out recently published, uh, written by Dr. Lynn Fenton, the psychiatrist who treated the Colorado movie theater shooter while leading up to the shooting. So I did some looking into that and it's uh, really just kind of crazy, the whole situation that this psychiatrist was in. And so essentially the shooter had James Holmes, uh, he'd come into her office uh, about six times before the actual shooting had happened and basically at the first visit expressed that he was having intrusive thoughts about shooting others. And so she's, you know, a seasoned psychiatrist, you know, what do you do in that situation? Um, Contacted the collateral family members, sort of tried to remove access to guns, even uh, went so far as to kind of consult law enforcement and see sort of what, they could do, uh, as well as just treating underlying psychiatric conditions. That's a lot. That's a lot of action, actually. Exactly. Like did pretty much, you know, covered everything that we have the capacity to cover. And uh, he even the day before the actual shooting apparently had mailed his own notebook to his psychiatrist, who I guess he felt some connection to at, at the end. And it was uh, detailed thoughts and plans that were leading up to that shooting. And obviously, you know, she didn't get that until afterwards, but I feel like we're just sort of caught in this in-between of, you know, the patient and then law enforcement as well. And we can't really enforce anything if nothing really has happened yet. Um, And I think kind of, her looking back at, you know, everything she did going through her chart, going through every, you know, risk assessment at the end of it, I don't think she felt there was anything she could have done differently, which is, then it goes back to sort of a, a gun law issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about, and I mean, this is, this is, I have not read the book. Um, I've, I've got it now and I'm excited to read it, but you bought it. Okay. I, I did. I went out and purchased it. I, I had to read it. Um, I think it's scary. It highlights, it highlights, I mean, I was saying before how bad we are at risk assessment that we can't predict the future. She did a very good risk assessment. She was predicting right. the future and yet there was nothing more that she could do. And she did a lot, right? So she did a lot and she still couldn't stop this from happening. And that's, it's really horrifying. And, and the only good news is that this is a very, again, isolated, but highly publicized, highly horrific public mass shooting. 
I, I think about it even with domestic violence, right? How often we know that somebody is at risk in the home and we know that person's at risk, but we can't get other family members out, right? We can't, uh, we can't restrict guns, we can't do certain things or that even someone might be stalking, but they haven't done anything yet. And so we can't, so law enforcement can't do anything. Um, and there's so many tragedies that probably could be avoided if we had, that's, that's just even a different law thing versus a different, a different gun law situation. Yeah. Was the conclusion at the end of her book that the only thing that could have helped was better gun laws? Pretty much. Wow. The conclusion. Wow. Yeah. She was sued for medical malpractice and, uh, you know, treatment for her treatment. Mm -hmm. I don't, I did it. Was there a settlement or? I I didn't know about that. Was the family sued or victim? I believe so. Let me just. Yeah. So yeah, she got um, sued for ma- medical malpractice. This is like in 2013. The widow of uh, of a one of, of the, one of the, the, victims. the victims. Yes. Mm. Um, that, that she didn't notify the authorities when she believed that she he was a risk to the community. That's what. But I don't believe that. I, at least I don't see it here. And it, it didn't say and what was the, book, the it? what was the result? Yeah, that's what I'm, I, I don't, I, I just brought it up just now. And so I don't see, mm. that was in 2013 that, that she had just filed the lawsuit, but I don't think there was a settlement. I don't remember. I don't know. And nothing in the book, right? So it must not have succeeded. This is just kind of par for the course when you're working. Right. Yeah. Online. Yeah. That is interesting. Has anyone ever had, uh, you know, relatives of a patient come in and, and have this sort of expectation, like this person has been violent in the past. I'm scared of them. Put them on medicine and and make that have the medicine cure their violence. Uh, what do you do in that situation? And is there any type of medicine that does sort of reduce violent thoughts? I haven't had that situation myself. I've had you know patients brought in by their parents because they're violent. Um, not, but they weren't, um, it, the motivation for the parents wasn't, they weren't afraid that they were going to do some sort of mass shooting or something. It's more just like family interfamilial violence. Um, so yeah. And, and for that sort of situation, depending on the severity, you know, what else has been tried, everything like that. Um, I might use something like risperidone. Um, but I would have to say that I have had a number of patients who have been victims of not, well, yeah, I mean, like bystanders in a mass shooting event. I mean, being in the Inland Empire, we had that San Bernardino shooting Mm -hmm. a while back ago. So, um, yeah, I've had, I've had, uh, victims in clinic? Almost exclusively, the largest number of my patients are adults who are in the hospital and there's usually some kind of violence um, or or their families have brought them in because they've been violent. We'll use Depakote. Um, That has some good evidence to reducing violence. It's it's not to, to go back to what we were talking about 
way last episode um, to not to not conflate though violence with mass shootings and mental illness with mass shootings. So Depakote might decrease violence a little bit, but it would not have stopped this young man from committing this atrocity. So medication can help. Certainly. I believe that as a psychiatrist (laughs) who prescribes them every day, Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, I think we'd want to be careful just making that, that jump so that people listening who are all psychiatrists, but people are listening not to think, well, we could prevent shootings if we were again, treating mental illness. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I really think when I counsel um, families about medications, I'm really careful to let them know, you know, these medications may reduce some impulsivity, but it's not going to change decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, let me, let me, I'm um, saying I did do a little more research. Yeah. It was dismissed that, that medical mm. malpractice lawsuit, but. Thanks, um, Aaron. <laughs> hey, oh, sure, sure. Um, I, so, uh, uh, Becky, when, when you're noticing uh, psychiatrists or beginning psychiatrists do assessments, what do you feel is the, or, or just, just mental health professionals, what do you think is the, the least utilized, but most important line of assessment questioning that is like, it's underused. It's not, is it, is it asking about guns or is it, is it something else? I, well, we're talking about guns. So I'm going to say a hundred percent. I don't think I've, and, and I was on the teaching unit for nine years. I don't think I ever saw a resident or a trainee, a psychology trainee, anybody say, and is there a gun in your home? And, and so I, I don't think I ever saw it. Now, again, we were inpatient. We deal with a lot of folks who don't have homes. So maybe the assumption was you don't have a home, therefore you don't have access. But a lot of our people have homes and uh, could have access to a gun. So so certainly I think that's an underutilized uh, line of questioning. And just to go back to the very, very beginning of this of this uh, episode, Tosha was talking about how complete her line of questioning was. She asked about where the guns were and, and where they locked up and where was this and do you know the code? I've seen a lot of, I think, young folks still need that confidence. They they hit something. I think it's natural, the human in us, you hit something uncomfortable. Oh, you know, you are having thoughts of suicide. Okay, we're going to help you with that. And then they move on rather than saying, tell me all the dirty details. And right. what's the method you're thinking of? And what plans have you made? And, and, and do you have access to a gun? I think that sometimes when just to recognize in ourselves when we're uncomfortable about something, our line of questioning may stop, even if we get a positive, a yes answer. Right. And I could, I could only imagine still, uh, still obsessing about this book that we're talking about, how, how uncomfortable I would be if the person said I'm having intrusive thoughts of shooting people. I bet my jaw would, jaw would hit the floor a little bit. I've heard a lot of things and not that. And so, and so then how do I, continue sitting in that uncomfortable space with our clients and exploring it and getting them to tell us all the information. And so I think especially as we're starting out, that's that's a hard that's a hard thing to practice and but we need to stay in that uncomfortable spot and ask ask all the details. I think that's so true. Yeah, sex, drugs, mm-hmm. suicide, violence, those are the things that people get really nervous about. And when our nerves show, it is so disruptive for the interview. Yeah. 
I feel myself being drawn about asking questions about different assessment of what might be more important than other questions. Cause sometimes, you know, you can't ask every single thing in an intake question. So, you know, if someone says they're impulsive, it's like, or they're, um, and they kind of mentioned that, how do you dig into that? What, what, how do you parse that out? Like an initial, let's say initial evaluation. Yeah, I'd probably just say, how so? What kind? Tell me, you know, I, I probably would just go open-ended because I wouldn't even know where to dig. They could be impulsive about so many things. Or does that get you into trouble? What kind of trouble? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, do you have, okay. does anyone have any more questions for Becky? No? Okay. I think we can wrap this one up then. And that will do it for this extended edition of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you for joining us.